Open your Bibles, if you will, to uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. And our worship services are really a microcosm of the Christian life. There's sorrowing, there's rejoicing, and always more to learn. And so we want to learn from the Lord Jesus and learn at his feet uh, from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 33, uh, through to verse 37. And I'm going to read that to you in just a moment. And first, I'm going to tell you a quick story uh, before we uh, head into Matthew chapter 5, verse 33 through 37. Hello. And so uh, let me let me tell you the story, and then I'll re- read the passage. So recently, a uh, Canadian psychologist and a political commentator, Jordan Peterson, was in a roundtable Uh, where he was interviewing various folks, and one of them was conservative talk show host Dennis Prager. And uh, Prager practices Judaism, and they began to think about uh, the topic of lust and pornography. And Prager said, I'm less interested in the interior person morally speaking. And he went on to say that that lack of interest in the heart of man was because, quote, I come from a behaviorist, law-based religion. We care how you act. That is why we do not have a claim that if you look after another woman with lust, it is as if you have committed adultery with her. Now, Prager knows what everyone should know, that Judaism and Christianity are not the same religion. And he was simply stating that at least in the branch of Judaism he would identify with, what matters is what you do. Do you obey the Ten Commandments? Do you commit adultery? And you can't commit adultery just by looking at someone lustfully. And Prager went on to say that when asked about pornography, by wives on his radio show, he tells them, listen, is the pornography in lieu of you or in addition to you? And his idea was that if it's in lieu of you, that is if pornography is replacing a relationship with an actual wife, then it's wrong. But if it's just an addition, just something extra, what's the problem? And Prager is a modern example of exactly what Jesus is dealing with in the Sermon on the Mount. And make no mistake, uh, though on the conservative side of politics, Christians may sometimes find allies, what Prager says is absolutely from the devil. It's evil. And it's wicked. And the kind of focus on just what you do based on the law and not getting to the heart of who you are is exactly the difference between Jesus and really everyone else. Jesus did not come to transform civil society, at least not as a primary goal. He came to make men new. He came to transform them. He didn't just come to make us do good things, to keep our noses clean, but to actually make us good from the heart so that husband and wife, 
And really, people in all walks of life can walk in an actual devotion that's coming from the inner person. There's actually an internal love and purity that can be enjoyed. Now, we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount for a number of weeks, and in, in these numbers of weeks, so who are we kidding? We've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount forever. Um, anyway, it's been a long time. And, and as we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, what we're seeing is Jesus is coming to transformed people. People who've become poor in spirit. People who've started to mourn over their sins. People whose encounter with Jesus Christ has, has left them meek, has left them, has left them as, as those who are poor in spirit and hungering and thirsting for righteousness. He's coming to this transformed people and he's giving them what they're hungry for. He's giving them teaching that would actually lead them to become more and more like him. Not just doing his dance steps, stepping where he steps, but becoming like him from the heart, actually listening and dancing to the same music of the soul that Jesus Christ is responding to, which is really the music of heaven. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 33, Jesus comes to one more of these issues, one more of these issues where the Jews were content to deal with the surface of the law. Law says don't murder. My heart can be full of hate. I'm good to go. Law says don't commit adultery. My heart can have a harem of lust in it. I'm good to go. The law says, hey, if you're going to get divorced, make sure you file the proper paperwork. Make sure you give her a certificate of divorce. And in each of these instances, Jesus goes, no, 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 that, you're just scratching the surface. Here's the fullness. I don't just want you to not murder. I want you to love. I don't want you to just not commit adultery. I want you to be free of lust. I don't want you to just not get divorced. I want you to stay in all marriages except in the most extreme circumstances. And now in the passage we're looking at this morning, Jesus touches actually, you know, sometimes preachers will say, this is where we really live, but this is where we really live. Our words, how we speak, how we communicate, and the truthfulness, not just that's there um, visibly, like do I sound truthful? Well, I put my hand on a Bible and swear, but am I actually truthful? Am I actually an honest person? And he wants his disciples to be people who don't need a bunch of oaths, don't need a bunch of vows to prove they're the real deal, to prove they're legitimate, to prove they're honest. But they're so committed to integrity, so committed to honesty, that all you would ever need out of them to prove what they're saying is truing is honest is a yes or a no. Let's read God's word. Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. He says these words, Again, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. 
anything more than this comes from evil. Now let's just divide this passage up two ways. Let's think for a minute about what the people of Jesus' day had been taught and then what Jesus was teaching. And then we'll work out several questions and practical implications of this teaching. So first we'll look at what the people of Jesus' day were being taught and then what Jesus was teaching and then we'll work out various implications and applications. Now these days, there's a new Star Wars TV show or movie about every 13 seconds. (laughs) But when I was a boy... Uh, There was only a new Star Wars show about every three years. And the greatest Star Wars movie of them all, bar none, The Empire Strikes Back, was released in 1980 when I was six years old. And it introduced a new character to the world, the character of Yoda. And Yoda was known for these short, uh, pithy statements And one of Yoda's greatest statements was, you must unlearn what you have learned. You must unlearn what you have learned. And essentially in the Sermon on the Mount, this is what Jesus is doing, is he's helping the people he's dealing with unlearn what they've learned. Now, what they had learned was in many ways very good. It was the law of God. That's why Jesus is always saying, you have heard it said, the ancients have said, you have read, you've received from the law of God. You've received what God gave to Moses, what God gave to Israel. But he continues to say to them, you need to unlearn what you've learned. And the reason he would say that is not because the law of Moses was bad or wrong. It was from God, just like he was from God. But because the law of Moses had been corrupted and the law of Moses was not the fullness of what God wanted to reveal. The law of Moses had been corrupted in that the Pharisees and the scribes of that day loved to take one verse and separate it from the whole context. So they would say, thou shalt not commit adultery. Oh, good to go. And they would miss, just like Dennis Prager misses, a few verses later, don't covet your neighbor's wife. Prager's not even getting the Ten Commandments right. Right there in the Ten Commandments, it doesn't, it's don't commit adultery, but also don't have that heart of coveting. But the people of Jesus' day would take one piece of the law and they would use it not to bring them into more and more holiness and righteousness, but to excuse all of their sin. So in verses that were meant to make divorces minimal and to protect women became verses that were used to make divorces rampant and to leave women high and dry. And so Jesus is saying, you've got to unlearn that way of dealing with the law. And what you need to do is learn to deal with God's law in its fullness, as it's represented in me, as it's filled out and filled in, as one person said it, by me. And what he does is he brings people to an undeniable, to the undeniable core and heart of the law. You've heard it said, don't murder. I say, don't even hate someone. Now, what he's doing this morning when he tells the people of God, his people, his disciples, just like you and me, disciples just like you and me, 
People who have been transformed and been given purity of heart and hungering and thirstings after righteousness and, and mourning over our sin. What he does as he teaches people like us is he reteaches how we're to think about our words. How do we think about our words? And he, he does it by beginning to paraphrase the Old Testament when it comes to vows. He paraphrases the Old Testament when it comes to vows. He says, again you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now there's actually no passage in the Old Testament that Jesus is directly quoting here. You look in vain to find, where's that verse? The one that says, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. There's no exact replica of that verse back in the Old Testament. But what Jesus is doing is bringing together in one line, like only a brilliant teacher can do, he's bringing together in one line the sum total of what the Old Testament taught on the subject of vows and swearing. Now, Everybody, you know vows and swearing, right? I was thinking to myself uh, last night, you know, when did I learn about vows and swearing? And it's almost like lying. It's like the kind of thing no one ever had to teach you. It's like you instinctively knew that if you made a double pinky promise, it had more weight than if you didn't. I don't remember who in the, in the classroom informed us that if you crossed your heart and hoped to die, <laughs> then what you would say was more believable than you didn't. But we all know this. We all know that there's your sort of ordinary lying, how big was the fish, it was this big, and then there's times where we're like, hey, no ordinary lying here. Take a vow, make an oath, do something that signifies, I can trust you now. I can believe what you are saying. That's an instinctive human thing in a world full of liars to say, these words are sacred. These words are believable. These words are trustworthy. And of course, that was the reality in the Old Testament. And so God had very particular things to say about how these oaths were to be taken. And I'll just give you a few samples of what the Old Testament said when it came to the subject of oaths or vows. So one would come from Numbers chapter 30, verse 2. Number, Numbers chapter 30, verse 2. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So, one of the simplest teachings in the New Old Testament regarding vows or oaths was if you make one, do what you say. Which is actually tied to the deepest theology you can imagine because our God is a God who speaks and whatever he speaks becomes reality. And if we're going to reflect him, then what we say ought to then flow out into reality because we're made in the image of God. 
So Psalm 15.4 will say, a righteous man swears to his own hurt and does not change. This is one of the big lessons you're always teaching as a parent and also learning to live out is if you say it, even if it's costly, you do it. We don't just bail on what we said because it's tough. We do what we said because we said we would do it. Deuteronomy 23, verse 21 is a little more. If you make a vow to the Lord, now the Lord is being brought into these vows. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. So here we see that a vow that's made to the Lord is something the Lord holds account, so accountable to. It's, it's one of the things I, I find myself saying all the time when I do marriage ceremonies, right before we enter into the vows, is these vows you are going to take are going to be brought up before you on the last day. God will hold you accountable to these vows, and to not keep these vows is a sin. So you know, you have the Ten Commandments. Can you add to the Ten Commandments? No, but if you say you'll do something, it has become a command in your life. It's something that you are required to do. And maybe undergirding all of this teaching is one of the big ten, one of the Ten Commandments. Undergirding all of this teaching about oaths and vows and making sure you do what you say is this verse, Deuteronomy 5.11. You'd find it also in Exodus 20. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now we often think about that as not cursing or cussing or swearing using God's name, and I think that's a right application. We should not curse and cuss using God's name or any way. Only wholesome words should be found coming out of our mouths. But... When we, but we're told that not only would this verse have application to not cursing or cussing or swearing, but when you swear, when you promise something in God's name and then don't do it, you're treating his name as vain or useless or light or frivolous. You're acting like it's a small thing to call God as your witness that you will do something. You're acting as if God is Weightless, and God regards that as a sin. He regards that as a personal offense against him. Now, that's what the Old Testament teaching was saying. Now let's shift gears a little bit. What were the Pharisees saying? How had they taken this? You can imagine they'd, they were doing wonderful uh, with this one. No, they, they had taken this, and they had developed a complex system of being able to swear almost using God's name and not mean it. They had learned the third grade double pinky promise, but my fingers are crossed behind my back principle. They had learned how to sound holy and live like the devil. So what they would do, here's what they would do. You gotta follow me here, it's a little bit tricky. This is a, a technical kind of lying. It takes me a little while to explain it to you, um, but it, it's worth understanding. What they would do is they'd say, God's name is so holy. Whew. 
so holy. And I'm not mocking God's holy name. I'm mocking the way they regarded God's name. They would say, God's name is so holy, we shouldn't even mention it. When we swear, let's not say Yahweh or God, let's say heaven, let's say the temple, let's say Jerusalem, let's, let's swear not using God's name, but using the things that surround God's name. Okay, and th- they had another step. Because that, that part makes you feel holy. I'm so holy, I don't swear God's, using God's name. I just swear with temple and Jerusalem and, and that kind of thing. But here's the new, next move they made. But when we don't swear using God's name, we don't have to keep our promises. It's, it's a slick move, right? I mean, you get to feel holy by heaven. I promise you I will. And then, and then you get to say, but I don't mean it because I said by heaven, not by Yahweh. And this thing was rampant. There's pages of scribal writings uh, from the Mishnah that discuss all of this detail about how exactly you could basically get away with murder uh, doing this. And Jesus himself actually gives us a bit of a commentary on how this was working in Matthew 23. It's worth seeing. So look at it, if you will, for a second. Matthew 23, verse 16. You can turn there if you want, or I'll read it to you. And Jesus says in Matthew 23, woe to you, which that's the kind of thing we can miss how brash Jesus is being. He's basically, you're going to be damned. So he says, woe to you. You're going to be damned, you blind guides, who say anyone who swears by the temple, it's nothing, but anyone who swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. See that slick move there? If I swear by the temple, no biggie, I can tell you that I'll build you a house for 5,000 shekels, you give me 5,000 shekels, but I bet you didn't notice I just swore by the temple. Had I sworn by the gold of the temple, I would have to do this thing. And he goes on, you blind fools, you sort of see why he's so irate. You kind of feel some of his holy indignation, right? You blind fools, which is greater, the gold of the temple that has made the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? If anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. For if anyone swears by the gift of the altar, he's bound by an oath. Okay, so you got to watch this. i got to explain it to you one more time, and then I want you to see how Jesus walks it back the opposite direction. God says, swear by my name. And when you do, do it. They say, oh, we're, we're too holy to mention your name. We're just going to do the heaven and the temple thing because we're so reverent. And then actually we'll make a little another distinction. Sometimes we do the temple. Sometimes we do the gold of the temple. Sometimes we do the altar. Sometimes we do the gift of the altar. And when we, when we say just the altar or the temple and not the gift or the gold, then we don't really have to do it. So it's, a, it's sanctified lying. It's, it's, it's holy deceit. It's reverent impiety. And what Jesus does here in our verse is he actually walks it backwards and he says, when you swear by the temple, that's me you're swearing by. It's my temple. When you swear by heaven, you're using my name in vain. It's my heaven. When you swear by your head, still me, you can't even change your hair dye. Well, you can share it with dye, but you can't change your hair color. That's still me. And so you see how this is being walked back. Uh, Look at the verse again. 
He says there, do not take an oath either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And don't take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair black or white. So the idea is, you think you're avoiding taking my name in vain by talking about things associated with me and not me. All those things that are associated with me, that's me. You're not distancing yourself one bit when you take those things and make your promises with those things, those oaths and vows, you are taking my name in vain. And it's really in that context that we ought to hear him saying, so cut the whole thing out. Don't take any oaths at all. Well, what are we gonna use as a standard for truth? How do we know if someone's telling the truth? He says, with Christians, all it should say, all it should take is that you say yes. Will you do that? Yes. The motto of the city of London is my word is my bond, except in Latin. My word is my bond. He's just basically saying that when you say yes, it should be yes. When you say no, it should be no. And anything beyond this, listen to this, is evil. Anytime you find yourself having to add up proof that you're telling the truth, that's evil. Because you're adding up smokescreen words to hide a heart that's not honest. And what he wants in his people is a heart that is truly honest. That's what he is aiming for. So, there's the teaching. The Pharisees and the scribes, yep, they understand the law says what it says. Don't take any oaths or vows. But, no, take oaths and vows, but do what they say. They've developed this complex system to kind of weasel their way out of being honest. Jesus says your whole system doesn't work because all those things are associated with me and you're taking the Lord's name in vain. You should cut it out and my people should be a people who just let their yes be yes and their no be no. Now I want to deal with about four different questions that come up when you start to look at Jesus' teaching honestly. Four different questions that come up when you're trying to deal with four, when you're trying to deal with Jesus' statements honestly. One would be this. Should Christians take any vows? If you're called to... Uh, be a policeman. You have to take an oath of office, like the president takes an oath that promises you will be faithful to your calling. Last Thursday, my very Canadian wife became a citizen of these United States of America. It was wonderful. She had to lift her hand. Amen. You don't have to clap. If you know my wife, she's like, oh my word, people are clapping that I became an American citizen. Was it wrong to her take it, to take an oath? To pledge allegiance? Most of you married folks, I think, took some vows, I hope. Was that wrong? Jesus said, don't take any oaths at all. Should we take oaths? Some Christian groups 
over the course of church history have, have said, no, it's, it's wrong to take any oaths at all. So George Fox, the founder of the Quaker movement, or the leader of the Quaker movement many years ago, was imprisoned because he wouldn't swear on a holy Bible. And the reason, he, he was quite eloquent in, in what he said. He said, when he was being arrested for uh, not swearing on a holy Bible, he said, you have given me a book here to kiss and swear on, and the book which you have given me to kiss says, kiss the sun. And the sun says in this book, swear not at all. I say as the book says, and yet you imprison me. How chance ye do not imprison the book for saying so? He's definitely convictional, courageous, and eloquent. I think he's wrong too. I don't think Jesus' words are meant to eliminate us from taking all vows at all times. And here's why. One, you gotta recognize Jesus actually was a preacher. And preachers, I know this will come as a shock to you, use hyperbole. And hyperbole is not lying. It's effective for piercing the heart, for pointing out just how serious something is. And the reason I think Jesus is using hyperbole here is not just because I want to get out of a difficult command, but because the rest of the Bible goes on to show that no one understood Jesus to be eliminating all vows. How many times have you read the Apostle Paul and heard him say things like this, like the book of Romans, for God is my witness. You're like, whoa, Paul, Sermon on the Mount. No, for God is my witness, whom I serve in my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I, I, I mention you. Or, or how about this one from Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.23, for I call God to witness against me. Paul clearly didn't understand the teachings of Jesus to bar all swearing or vows or thinking. Or think about this. Some of you, your assurance of salvation has been so ministered to by Hebrews chapter 6. What happens in Hebrews chapter 6? God swears and vows and tells you that it's a good thing that he did. Let me read it to you. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Why does God swear and take a vow or take an oath. Condescension. Same kind of humble condescension that got Jesus on a donkey. He doesn't need to ever say truly, truly, I say unto you, but he does. It's not because he's unreliable. It's because in a world of unreliable liars, he wants to condescend to you and just make it abundantly clear he will never lie to you. And in the same way, I think Christians can put their hand on a Bible or take an oath. Not because we need to put our hand on a Bible before we're honest, but because knowing that we're going to be honest, it's no problem for us to also seal that honesty publicly. 
and to say what we know. But the most important piece is that we be people who, without a Bible under our hands, be people who, as word, is our bond. If you're looking for a parenting tip, do what you say. Repent when you don't. If you're looking for a friendship tip, do what you say and repent when you don't. The second question that comes up in my mind when I think about this teaching is, can a Christian ever lie? Are yeses to be yes? Are no is to be no? We are to be a people of truth. We're to be a people characterized by truth-telling. And of course, you hear about different places. I know of seminaries in parts of the world where it's assumed that every student is cheating on their tests. What a tragedy. So Christians are to be these people who always tell the truth. But is there ever a time a Christian can lie? Is that ever an option? Now, solid, faithful saints, men much greater than I, like John Murray, St. Augustine, have said no, not ever, never. Others, not just me, have questioned that. I think they're, I think they're right to question that. While a Christian should be known for scrupulous and consistent truth-telling, there are examples in the Bible where lying is commended and when it saves the lives of his people. Especially in the Bible, it saves the lives of God's people. You remember the Hebrew midwives? They were told to kill all the children that were being born to the, to the Hebrew women. And the, the, they, were, they were actually, they were creative liars. You might remember their lie. Uh, the Pharaoh's guys would pronounce in and say, was the baby born? And they say, oh, no, no, it's gone already. Uh, the Hebrew women are much more vigorous than the Egyptian women. And you got to get here faster than that if you want to catch these ladies. And so, and, and it, it says right there in the passage that this was a mark of God's, of their fearing God, and that God actually rewarded them with children for taking this action. Or you might remember that in Hebrews chapter 11, Rahab is commended for her faith. But what did Rahab do that was so full of faith? She hid spies. She lied to the enemies of God's kingdom to keep them faithful. Now, we're never to bear false witness against a neighbor, but in the words of John Frame, whether a neighborly relationship exists between a believer and someone who seeks to murder, that's in question. And so there are times, you think of World War II stories, hiding the Jews, I think there would be situations in that time where it would be right to conceal someone from the murder they would definitely be facing. Now, here's, here's my only nervousness about saying these things. I have two pieces of nervousness. I'll say them quickly. One, there's some of you that aren't basically honest, and the last thing you need to be thinking about is the exceptions to the rule. You, you, need, to be, you need to cultivate, I tell the truth even when it hurts me so bad before you ever start thinking about the exceptions. And to my libertarian brothers and sisters, if you could not justify tax revolt through this, I would really appreciate it, okay? <laughs> we are neighbors in this nation of America, and 
Paul tells us to pay taxes to Nero, and I don't think that all the exceptions of the lying should be jumped on. They're, they're used very rarely in the scriptures, and life is on the line in those moments. We gotta keep that in mind. Let's think for a minute, too, about how truth-telling affects our witness. We're to be completely honest. Our yes is to be yes, our no is to be no. We're not to use fancy oaths to conceal the fact that we're lying. Let's think about how this truth-telling affects our witness. Brothers and sisters, we are called to be a people who speak the truth. We're called to speak hard truths in love. We're called to say there's a God when he's denied and ignored. We're called to say men are sinners in a day and age where people uh, will give every explanation for man's bad behavior except sin. Men are today happy to call people victims, mentally ill, sick, but they will not tolerate being called sinners. But that's what we're called to do. And we're called to speak of Jesus Christ who died to save sinners. And on, on all kinds of streaming services, you'll find on the History Channel, documentaries that debunk the biblical myths about Jesus. Everyone has access to those. And we're to say, no, he's a real person. He was the son of God. He died on the cross for sinners. He really rose from the dead. We're to speak truth in the public square. We're to call a thing what it is. We're called to call abortion murder hooking up fornication, porn, lust, and adultery. We're called to call gay marriage a mirage. We're called to call biological men, men, and women, women. We are to call secularism a false religion and Islam a demonic faith and Catholicism a damned anathema. We're to speak all of this in truth. And how on earth are we to be believable if we don't keep our word? How are we going to talk big about all these big issues if we're unreliable when we say, I'll be at work and we're not? I'll have it done and we don't. There's nothing more irritating than to have people having, they know all the truths of the universe but you can't trust them to do what they basically say. Now, I know there are times where we say we'll do something and we simply can't. That's why we should actually live more into what James tells us, that we shouldn't walk through life saying we're going to do this or that. We should walk through life saying, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. But insofar as it depends on you, your yes should mean yes. Your no should mean no. I'll be there should mean I'll be there. I'll get it done should mean I'll get it done. And those basic acts of faithfulness in everyday life actually wind up becoming the foundation for being able to speak the truths to the bigger issues, or at least to the more inflamed issues of our day. It's important that we help each other, not just think through the cultural issues of our day, but we help each other know how to be honest employees and spouses and friends and church members. The way the Apostle Paul talks about it, he says in Ephesians, speak truth to one another, don't lie to one another because you're members of one another. When you lie about another Christian or to another Christian, you are lying to yourself because we're one in Jesus. Finally, let me ask this question. 
How do we become people of truth? How do you become honest? And let me just ask you to be honest with yourself. Do, do you lie? Do you learn how to answer questions so the truth just slips past safely? Everyone thinks you were honest, but you weren't. How do we become people of truth? How do you become honest? How do you quit lying? Well, maybe it helps to ask, why do we lie? I find that people lie, and I say this from my own personal lies and from pastoral experience, because they want to look one way or they want to have one thing. They lie in order to keep up an appearance or they lie to get something they wouldn't otherwise be able to have. That's why they lie. People lie to look better than they are. They show up at church and bless the Lord. They deny looking at porn or being lazy at work because they want to look pure and industrious. It's been said hypocrisy is the tribute that virtue, that vice pays to virtue. You act like a hypocrite because you know virtue is right. And you know instinctively you should cover your vice. When we lie, we say, I know I should look one way and be one way, but I'm not so, so I will settle for having people think that I'm one way. Or we lie to get something. This is the other thing. We lie so we can steal, break our word, look like we did our homework and not do our homework. We lie so we can get away with grabbing some sinful passion. How do you stop doing that? How do you stop lying? How do you own up to being as wicked and dark and black and selfish as you really are? Most people can't. The shame is too great. The shame of admitting, I've looked at porn and I've lied about it. I'm a lazy, terrible employee and I've lied about it. The shame of admitting that is too great for most people to go there. But there's a place where you can come clean and the shame is dealt with. There's a person you can come to where you can come clean. Jesus died on the cross for liars, lusters, haters, embittered worriers, self-righteous hypocrites. He died for them. And if you come to him, you have to admit all the things that you're ashamed of are true. All the lies you used to cover them up were lies. But he covers all your shame. He pays the full price for everything you've done. Normally, if you admit how bad you are, you get canceled. Even forget cancel culture. You just tell people how bad you are, they'll walk away. Except when that's happening in a Christian context. Except when that's happening to Christ. You tell Christ you're a sinner and he's drawn to you. You tell Christ you're sinful and wicked and he will not despise you. He moves in towards sinners. He moves in to cover their shame. He says, I lived a perfect life. You didn't. I lived a life of truth to cover your lies. I died on the cross to pay the full penalty for your lies. And you don't have to grasp and lie to get what you want because I'll be everything you need. I'll be your savior. I'll be your delight. I'll be your bread. I'll be your wine. I'll be your water. I will be everything to you. And all of a sudden, having a place to put your shame lets you be honest. And all of a sudden, having a treasure that satisfies your heart means you need to, don't need to lie to get what you need because you already have 
the most important thing for the soul to have. Come to him. Turn to him. He'll transform you. He'll make you poor in spirit. He'll he'll make you mourn over your sins, but it'll be blessed. And then he'll take the transformed you and he'll teach you. He'll teach you how to be honest from the heart. And you'll be a disciple who's walking with a greater righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees ever knew. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, we praise you, and we ask you to please make us honest. Forgive us for lying, gossiping, slandering, hiding, throwing holy words out to sound better than we are. Lord, cover us in your blood and make us fearlessly honest because there's nothing we could say or find out about ourselves that would turn you away from us. You receive us as sinners. And now, Lord, help us to speak your truth. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.